start it again. Sorry. <laughs> Hello, I'm Basti. Hey, and I'm Nico. And we're both from Berlin. And we're just here to shotgun a lot of beers. Yeah. And welcome to the late edition. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of the Late Edition for YakimaValleyHops.com and SpotHops.com. My name is Caleb Schwecki, and it feels good to be back in front of the microphone again. We had to step away for a little bit, working on some other projects, whipping up a new website. That's been a lot of fun, working on HomebrewCon. That's just a couple weeks away. So we hope to see everyone, all you homebrewers, out in Providence at the end of June. We are going to be booth number uh, 325, have some fun surprises in store, Plan and on drinking a lot of beer should be a good time hope to see you there Something else you will not want to miss out on is our fresh hop party here at Yakima Valley Hops. We're partying in the streets Friday, October 4th. We're bringing in about 30 breweries from the area, some of the best fresh hop beers you will ever try. We are going to be rocking out to some really good bands like Speaker Minds and Eddie Spaghetti. Absolutely, we'll dance to that. Tickets are not on sale yet, but once they do go up, they will sell out. We are going to be limiting it this year, making it a little bit smaller. Other than that, it's been all sorts of madness around here. The 2019 Australian Galaxy just showed up, so that's just been a feeding frenzy. We will be updating inventory for 2019 Galaxy every day on yakimavalleyhops.com, so if it if you see that it's sold out, just check back. The next day, the stock will be updated. We're going to try and stretch it out, get it into as many folks' hands as possible. And if you're curious about wholesale availability, we will be offering 2019 Galaxy on spothops.com in 22 pound increments, 10 kilograms. And that inventory will be updated every Monday. So again, if it's out of stock, check back. But enough about all that, let's get into this episode because man, it's an interesting one. Seth from Mecca Great Estate Malt down in Oregon, our neighbor to the south, stopped in, was hanging out with some friends in the area, wanted to stop in here, talk about the world of malt, and man, was it a good conversation. I learned so much about malt from Seth. I really appreciate you stopping by, taking the time, and hope everybody out there enjoys this episode. Here we go. My name is Seth Klon. I'm the owner, farmer, and maltster at Mecca Great Estate Malt in Madras, Oregon. Uh, Madras, Oregon is about an hour north of Bend in central Oregon, and my family's been farming there since 1905. Um, we have an estate malt house, which means um, it's pretty unique. There's only a few of us probably in North America, but estate malt means that we grow. We grow and source all of our own um, grain from our own family farm. And it's all done, we have a, we farm a little over a thousand irrigated acres. Everything is sourced from within a two mile rate. So that's one of the things with grain and with malt, most malt is sourced from all over the place, whether it's small maltsters or big, or big maltsters. We do everything on site and what makes us unique as well is that our production is limited by our own acreage. So at a certain point we can, you know, we're gonna outgrow our acreage That'll be that. We'll take the customers that we have and then um, just work with them and grow with them. And that's kind of how I view, you know, growth sustainable. So 
Very yeah, cool. Yeah. What's what's the advantage to having a single source for your grain? Um, our biggest thing is you know is 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 trying when we talk about like you know terroir. This idea comes up a lot, and it's kind of a buzzword a little bit. But I really believe that it is a thing in grain. And I was having this conversation with someone last night. But what we got what got me thinking about terroir. And that means, you know, the flavor of how that plant is expressed through farming practices, irrigation, its, its environment. In Madras, we grow a lot of specialty crops. Um, so a lot of seed crops. But when I was growing up, we, uh, we grew peppermint for oil. And so one of the things that everyone talked about was in the Madras and Culver area, they used to refer to it as far as the peppermint oil, the flavor of it. They used to call it like the champagne area. of peppermint oil and then eventually they found out that it was so flavorful they were able to blend it with cheaper stuff and and then contracts kind of started drying up but i always had that in the back of my mind that yeah um that like our area has a specific impact on flavor and that's just kind of informed me on you know the, the the grain end of things um and so when we first started it we were told pretty much by a lot of people it's like well variety has no impact on flavor terroir terroir does not exist in grain I think it exists in hops. So our whole thing is, uh, one of my big missions is to prove that terroir is a thing. And coming back to your original question, um, uh, the only way that I believe that you can prove that is a thing is the, the elimination of variables in the whole agricultural process, right? So we're really unique in the fact that, you know, we're growing all of our own grain. So we're farmers first. I've been farming for a really long time. So if we can grow essentially like what all farmers are trying to do grow a really high quality crop year after year Um, we can precisely control that amount of irrigation that goes onto it grow it in really similar soil types as close to the malt house as possible we've already taken care of like you know any difference in the field at that point and then the next step is to treat everything and malt it um, as consistently as possible so if you can keep doing that and then you can see over time that there is a specific flavor um, whether that's by variety or, um, you know, that's across all of the grain, then you can maybe say, yeah, maybe terroir is a thing. Then, <laughs> then does it taste good? I don't know. And is it, is it marketable? That's, that's always been the big question too. I, I, I would argue like, I, I don't think most beer drinkers are thinking about terroir, you know, let alone, um, the, the challenge we run into with, with malt is that most people don't really know what malt is and that it comes from grain and that a farmer has to grow it. So a lot of like what I do is like basically ag education. There's a huge educational component to being a maltster. I think there should be. And that's what a lot of what I've been doing is just kind of educating people that malt is a thing and it has some awesome impact on beer. Awesome. Well, let's go back for a minute. What, what do you look for in a grain growing region? Like what makes it, you know, the champagne growing region for grain? For us uh, in Madras, and it's really similar to Yakima, but like you guys get more heat unit days up here. So you're able to grow hops and, and hops have been looked at, you know, maybe growing and maybe we could do it in Central Oregon. There's some, peop- some, some people doing it, but we can grow grain really, really well there. And a lot of that has to do with we have just the right amount of heat, heat unit days. So the and over in Madras, we we're kind of in a really weird spot. I think of it as almost as an oasis. So you have the um, Cascade Mountain Range that divides the state. A third of it to the to the to the west is the Willamette Valley, the coast. Um, they get a lot of rainfall over there. To put it in perspective, it takes about 20 inches of rainfall throughout the growing season to make a good malting barley or malting grain crop. We got two inches of rainfall last year, 
And so um, we're completely dependent on irrigation. So when it rains in, in the Willamette Valley and those rain clouds start scooping up over the mountains, they inevitably like overshoot us. Like they go right over top of where we live and it rains more out in the desert. But what that creates is it creates, you know, uh, an opportunity because we're essentially a disease free area that that it's so dry there. Um, we really don't have any disease. Um, and so uh, predominantly what a lot of the crops grown in Madras are is a specialty seed crop. So um, at any given time in Madras, there's always one crop that is like we're the world producer of. So that for the past 30 years, Madras has been the world producer of carrot seed, hybrid carrot seed. And that's kind of the cash crop there. Um, and so we grow the seed and then it goes down to California or other places where the actual produce is grown. So what happens in the desert is you have hot, dry days and it gets really cold at night. So you have this huge temperature flux between the two of them that puts plants into reproductive stress and it allows more seed to come on. And so we have people like breeders from around the world coming to matters specifically to prop up their seed crops, whether that's carrot seed. Um, a lot of most of our acreage is actually Kentucky bluegrass seed for golf courses and for lawns. And we use the grain as like whether you know for malting um, as a rotation crop. So when you were talking earlier about having to educate about what is malt, so in the world of hops, people talk about alpha acids and mm -hmm. you know oils per milligram. Is there like one stat or one thing that maltsters really look for? Ooh, that's a really good question. So um, you know over the past hundred years, we've been breeding in barley. Um, it's been for this is like my soapbox, but like. In, bar in the barley world, barley over the past 100 years has been bred for basically easier processability through large malt houses. If you're a malt house, a big malt house, and you're wanting, you know, you have farmers growing for you, you need lots of acreage. That's why a lot of the, the barley that we use or as brewers use comes from Canada, Montana, kind of all in that area. And there's thousands and thousands of acres of it. Um, over time, they've been breeding uh, from the farmer's standpoint, always for, you always want better yield you want disease resistance, but on the malt house end, it's always been about extract. So it's always been about the amount of sugar that you can wring out of that, of that particular malt, right? And somewhere along the way, we stopped worrying as much about flavor. And so we have, you know, great extract, we have, you know, uh, good yields on all this stuff, but like most, a lot of malts, like pretty blah, it doesn't really taste like much. And that's been the big, so that's, a really good opportunity if you're a small maltster like us to focus on some of these older varieties because we've found um, that some like the older heirloom varieties and by heirloom you know anything that's around 30 years plus or older they just seem to like have a lot more flavor and so that's been our big focus is on essentially working with heirloom varieties but then breeding those back in with more modern varieties to try to try to breed some flavor back into uh, into, into barley. And so for us, like we have our own, we're, we have our own private public partnership with Oregon State University and we're breeding our own proprietary varieties of barley specifically for that. So when you talk about flavor in hops that comes from terpenes, oils, things like that, are there compounds or proteins or what are you trying to breed to get that flavor? The thing is, we don't know. There's been none of that research done in barley because no one's specifically breeding for flavor. So that's what drives me nuts. And it's like everyone gets a little like when we're talking, uh, you know, um, say we're looking at specs um, for receiving 
barley from the field. If I'm a big malt house, I don't want a lot of protein in that. So I'm looking at anywhere from like 10 and a half to 11 and a half. If it's more than that coming in, I'll reject it because those malt, like that grain is going to be harder to steep. It's going to be harder to malt. I'm looking at a certain range, but the thing is there is positive flavor components and attributes associated with proteins and higher proteins. They're just harder to malt. And so this work really, I mean, there's some work out there, um, but I feel like, well, with our project specifically, um, we started um, at Oregon State. Um, they were getting funding for, um, uh, getting some funding for doing research on spring two row. So every, all the barley that we have is a spring two row. And mo- a lot of malting is now being shifted over to winter varieties because that's what most farmers grow. Um, they want winter facultative varieties. And so there was a whole bunch of these plants that were crosses with full pint, which is the variety, it's an Oregon State variety. It's what we grow. There was all these crosses in a greenhouse, 160 different selections. Um, that were just going to be sitting there and, and not being utilized for anything. My dad and I approached them. Um, we bought all of those crosses and we started planting them on our farm with the goal of eventually, um, you know, owning five of these varieties. And so over four years, we would plant them every year. We would weed out the things that didn't look like they'd be working on the farm. And so now we're down to five varieties that um, we have the malting specs on. The malting, some of like the malting specs on, on some of them look awful, but full pint doesn't look great either, but it's just packed with flavor and we don't know why. So even though you have like something that looks st- like we have a cup on there, they look stellar on paper. How are you going to tell what the flavor is? You got to make a beer out of it. And so the next step is actually, um, we have, we've had them all micro malted um, in 200 pound batches at Oregon state. Um, they're going to be using their pilot brewery to make single malt, single malt, single hop pilsners out of them, put them in front of a couple different sensory panels. Um, And one of those panels in particular is a consumer preference panel. So they're going to be looking specifically at, well, we've been doing all this work. Did we, did we breed anything new and novel into the flavor of beer? And two, does it taste any good? (laughs) Because we could have went through this whole thing and it could have tasted like, it could taste like shit. We just don't know. And so that's the thing was like, but no one's doing that. Like everyone is breeding to hit a certain number on a spec sheet but then no one and then they don't want anything to be obtrusive right that's a big thing is eh, just just have it not really stand out so when we first started it's like why would we be growing the same varieties and malting it the same way as everyone else and then saying hey we're local hey we're from oregon let's charge you like four times as much for it and have it be the same thing as everyone else it just that seems a little disingenuous to me yeah. So when you're when you're targeting these five varieties, are you looking at these varieties to be like unique and independent in their own way, or mm-hmm. are you you know kind of trying to arrive at the same conclusion with all all five of them? No, I'm just kind of seeing what's what's there, and that's what a lot of that's what a lot of breeding is. It's just like you cross them together and you see what happens, right? We're just kind of basically along for the ride with it. We don't know what we've made. We know that it looks really good out in the field, and we know we have yield data on it. So that's already been bred for, like performance out in the field. But the big question is, like, what does it taste like in beer? We don't, we don't know. So the thing is, like, we may have created nothing. We may have created something like the holy grail of, you know, whatever. One of them that's still in the, still in, of the five is full, full pint crossed with Maris Otter, which is really cool. And it, it, it looks like... It looks like a dog on a malting spec sheet, 
But then again, so does like full pints kind of a weird one too. Um, but what if we make this beer and it's like has this amazing flavor? As a small malster and as us, we're able to process things a little bit like the way we're set up, we can we can tackle those projects. And so if it's all about flavor at the end of the day, that might be something we're going to pursue. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's take a step back and talk about the composition of malt. So mm-hmm. you have proteins, you have carbohydrates, you have oils, I assume? Uh, I mean, oils are like more like the lipids and stuff. That's more like in oats and whatnot. So it's mostly carbohydrates, proteins, and then the living part of the plant, the, uh, the, the acrospire generates enzymes. Um, so that's what you use, you know, the brewer will use to break down those carbohydrates into, into, into simple, simple sugars for the yeast. But that's the thing, it's, it's really hard. I know Oregon State probably doesn't toot their horn enough, but they're actually trying to figure out um, a genetic fingerprint for flavor. But some of those relationships um, between like, you know, what, you know, what um, gene causes this particular flavor are so enmeshed with other genes that it's really hard to tease out. And so, yeah, it's like, well, what is it? It's, 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 a comp- it's like all these different thresholds coming together to form a certain flavor. And then that's the thing with like with hops, you have you know you have all the different levels, uh, the different you know the oils and whatnot in there. But that's taken off the field; it's dried down. You're trying to like take care of it as best as you can. When it comes to grain and when it comes to malt, then you have another level on there, another layer of the maltster. So you could make the best grain in the world, and that that flavor potential could be there. Uh, you could either make great malt or really you know not great malt at the malt house itself. So that's like why I think that's why a lot of people kind of poo-poo the idea of terroir in barley is because you have this whole other process that can, you know, you can make anything from something that tastes like grass straw and or, you know, to, to on the spectrum of like burnt coffee grounds. I mean, and every flavor in between. Um, so our biggest focus is really on really lightly kilned malts in order to showcase that because you're not going to be able to taste any kind of flavor of place from a caramel malt, for example. You can technically make a very good one um, and it can have those flavors expressed through there. But I think about two thirds of what we make is Pelton, which is our Pilsner style malt. And we're just making that all the time. So is there is there typically a, se- a separation between the farmer and the maltster or do a lot of folks farm and malt their own stuff? No. As of like really recently, um, that has never been a thing. Like the kind of the history of malting was it, it, it follows the history of brewing because they're linked together, obviously, um, you know, around prohibition or prior to prohibition, I should say, most towns had several different breweries. In order to feed that, there might have been a town maltster or a regional maltster. Um, prohibition hits, that dries up, and then everything's, you know, focused down into a couple large breweries, the ones that can survive, right? And so then goes away, you know, the, the local maltster. These, you know, larger breweries require more and more grain, more and more malt. And so to, in order to feed that, you know, malting operations get condensed down into a couple large malt houses in the country. Um, so what's happened in brewing, like brewing is the whole craft beer revolution, but that really hasn't happened on, and it's, I'd say, I'd argue it's obviously happened with hops too, but malt's really the last thing to follow suit. Um, so there is a small movement of, of, of small maltsters, and uh, most of us are part of a thing called like the Craft Maltsters Guild. Um, I was on the board of directors for it for a few years, but um, I think one of the there's a production cap on it, kind of like the, the Brewers Association. But this is like a hard cap of um, if to be considered a craft maltster, 
um, you have to produce less than 10,000 tons a year. To put it into perspective, like we're a really we're a pretty good size like small monster, and we might make 500 tons a year. Um, so I, that's I, I can't imagine being 20 times as big than what we are right now. But I'd say in North, it's it, it, we we look at North America. There's probably like 50 of us now. A lot of it's back. A lot of it started on the East Coast with um, New York has like a farm brewery bill. And so part of that, I think, is like by 2023, if you're considered to be in this tax bracket in a farm brewery or distillery, you had to source 90% of your ingredients from the state of New York. So that's really drove a lot of, you know, hops coming back, production coming back to New York. It's also drove a lot of interest in starting up small malt houses. But kind of from what I've seen, a lot of like, there was a huge boom of like people wanting to get into like um, the craft malting thing. And it's kind of leveled off a little bit. I think people... (laughs) I think people like realize like it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to do what we do. And uh, I couldn't imagine like I think the nice thing about like what we do, we've got the grain figured out. I mean, we can farm it really well and we're in an area that does a good job. I couldn't imagine um, with some of these operations where you're you're, you know, dependent on other growers for you and you're trying to source that because I've heard horror stories of like, you know, crops failing, failing, not being able to accept things, farmers getting pissed off that you can't accept it now. And it, a lot of it's you're just at the whim of mother nature. It's just farming in general. That's just the thing. So like even with us, like that's people see the big, you know, the pictures of our malt house with the big storage in the back, these giant silos. A lot of the reason we do that is because we're our only source of seed. Our whole thing is ba- we have our own, our own varieties. Um, when we're planting, we're making sure to overproduce so that we can tuck that away in case we ever get a, a hailstorm, a crop failure. We never know. But if, if brewers and distillers are you know, building whole recipes or whole products around our particular flavor, we want to make sure that we have enough uh, inventory stashed away from them. What are some things that you need to look out for in protecting your crop? Diseases, molds, mildews? Um, in barley, uh, I know in wheat, um, rust, it's kind of a, it's a fungus that can be an issue in matters. That's the nice thing about matters. It's so dry. Uh, but the only thing that we really get over there that we have to be really careful about is ergot. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. Oh my gosh. That's a whole rabbit hole to get down. But ergot is, um, it's, it's a spore. It's a fungus that floats around. It's in the atmosphere right now. Um, and it, it will fall down during the crop, like when, the, when that grain or any, it'll, it'll infect any kind of grass. So technically grain, cereal grains are a grass. Um, so as that, as that is flowering, these spores will infect it and it co-ops and kind of hijacks that development process. And what it looks like, it looks like a rat turd. That's like, in, like instead of a seed, it's like, it looks like a, like a little rat turd. But if you were to look at that underneath a microscope, it would look like a bunch of like little tiny dark gray, like, like small cap mushrooms. So back in the day, they figured out, uh, I think this was early 1900s, some Germans figured out if you could isolate some of the, some of the compounds that come off of that, that's where we get LSD from. And so, <laughs> and they, they talked, like no one really knew what was going on. So that's one of the things is, uh, if you ever heard of like, I think it's like called St. Elmo's fire or, you know, like when they hear about villages kind of going nuts or like having like, 
you know, uh, be like breaking out into sporadic dance and everyone was dancing around like losing their minds. It's because if humans eat enough of this stuff, it's toxic to them. And so, you know, when I was talking about having the village brewery or the village malter, there's the village baker, they'd be bringing in grain. Um, it's really bad in rye. They'd be bringing in grain, they mill it together as a flour. The heat from the baking process isn't enough to destroy those alkaloids. And so if you keep on going to the same baker every day, it takes a while for you to ingest enough of it. But if everyone's eating the same bread, eventually they'll start going nuts. And they think that is what happened or led to some of the craziness around the Salem witch trials. But people had no idea. And so one of the things, like that's, it's a crazy thing. Like when I talk about it to people and I bring it up every once in a while, it makes it sound like I'm taking crazy pills. It's it's a very it's a big concern so much that uh, we have an ergot specialist in our area. Like um, they have a, a series of extension agencies through Oregon State University. We have a specialist there. We're tracking we're tracking uh, ergot spores. Um, we're having to use fungicide at very specific times of the flowering stage, but it does so well over there because it's so hot and dry and windy. That stuff just blows in and infects things. Um, But for the most part, the only thing that it is really bad in is rye. And a lot of that is because um, barley will maybe flower for 10 days, up to 10 days. Rye can flower in certain varieties up to like four weeks. And so it's just hanging out there and it's just getting a viral load placed into it. And so everything we do, we have, North America doesn't have a policy for it. Europe definitely does, but we have a zero tolerance policy for ergot. The only way that you're able to separate it is taking it through an optical sorter. Um, So you run it through um, uh, basically a really high powered uh, uh, computer and it uses blasts of air to eject the little black seeds. Um, And we we get that all tested, but if you ever if if you're brewing you'll every once in a while you'll see like a little tiny black thing i think most brewers assume that it's a, a roasted kernel or something from like a roasted grain it's not you should take a look at it and if you see that when you're running it through your mill make sure to pick those things out cuz i'm sure it's not going to kill you but it's definitely not not a good thing so we're really really we're really really conscious about that so it's not just like free LSD that you should, you know, hoard. And- <laughs> they actually, it's funny, like um, there's not a lot of money to be made in grain growing at all. Like we break even on some of this stuff. And then it, over in Germany specifically, I got looking into it. They'll actually inoculate fields to gross. They call the, uh, they're not, the technical term for these things um, when they're growing in the field or when you get them, the little rat turds is called sclerotia. Um, and so they'll actually inoculate to produce sclerotia out in the field and harvest them specifically for that. Because the other component of it, the other component is that uh, it's, it's a vasoconstrictor. And so it starts cutting off blood flow, especially to your extremities. So that's why people, they weren't necessarily dancing around because they were going nuts. It was because their, their ends of their fingers felt like they were on fire because they weren't getting, the blood flow was getting blocked going out there. And so they use it pharmaceutically as a vasoconstrictor because it's, it's, it's used to stop vaginal bleeding bleeding during childbirth, and so it does have some good uses. But it's like it's it's a very targeted thing, and uh, like most things in nature, it's like there are certain thresholds, right, to where they're beneficial to us. So you go one way too far, and it's it's probably not a good thing. Interesting. Yeah. 
So there's mm-hmm. there's some breeding going on with hops, mm-hmm. and they're trying to you know produce cannabinoids, THC, things like that. There's other breeding for hops, trying to emphasize like beta acids, so that they can separate those out and use them for like sleep aid. Mm-hmm. Is there any breeding or like you know fringe thing in grains that's kind of similar to that? I think the biggest and the, the most fringe thing right now is just uh, is that uh, that there is. One that there uh, there's a varietal flavor difference. Like it's frustrating to me. Like, yeah, it, it'd be like saying that there's absolutely no flavor difference between uh, <laughs> between like um, uh, what am I trying to think? Like Citra and Cascade. That's what's going on right now in 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 barley. And to a certain set extent, it's true because most of like what comprises a two row, it's a blend. It's it can be any of one of eight varieties, and they come from the same parentage. So yeah. They probably do all taste the same, but then when you get these other kind of oddball varieties, they taste completely different. So we're all the way back here where I feel like hops are all the way over here. Like that argument was, you know, busted out a long time ago and everyone's been off to the races for quite a while breeding some like crazy flavors into hops. That is, does not exist in grain right now. We're about the only ones I know that are really trying to push this thing. We're part of a a deal with Oregon State uh, and a couple of students there where um, we actually grew the same variety on our farm. It was full pint, grew it on our farm um, in a couple different locations in the valley. All of that was taken off um, and sent back to RAR malting. They did a micro malting on them and then they made beer out of them. And so all of those beers were completely different beers. And that's just the varietal impact on grain. And so what we're finding out in some of these older varieties is, and we start talking about epigenetics and whatnot, is that the older varieties are more expressive of like environmental stressors put upon them. Um, and that's what's throwing like really different flavors. So the stuff that was coming out of uh, Madras, they had flavors of caramel and mull, and the stuff that was coming out of the valley was a completely different flavor. And it's all the same variety. And it'd be the same thing as like saying like, you know, you're going to be growing cascades up here and then growing them down in New Zealand and then saying, oh, there should be no flavor difference. It's all the same variety kind of thing. And it's it's bullshit. I just feel like we're one of the few people that are like pushing this kind of thing. So I'd like to need to talk about it a little bit more. And it's important, but it's going to take years and years to do this. Like I I've essentially like when we started, we call it like the next plant project, that breeding program with Oregon State we bought eight years worth of research. Like we're that much farther ahead. And then it took us that many years to select a variety. It's gonna come around, but a lot of it's it's coming down to our brewers asking for this. Does it have an impact on flavor? I mean, we could be doing all this stuff and if it's not contributing something positive to beer, then why do it? So that's like why, you know, eventually we're gonna have to make beer with this and see if it's any good or not. And I think it will be. But ideally, I'd like to get back to a thing where it's like, We've made some really great, I know smash beers kind of get a bad rap because they eventually just become a showcase for hops, right? You want to use a pretty neutral malt in it. My big kind of argument is if you have, you know, you have all these really crazy flavorful hops now, what if you pair those with a super flavorful malt? Then there gets to be a completely new language and flavor interaction going on between the two of them. 
and maybe you start changing the flavors. It becomes a new thing as opposed to just showcasing the flavor of the hop. Whether that's good or not, I mean, I'm sure if more people tried it out, maybe they'd find certain interactions that were really good and made certain hops taste even better. Let's talk about the role that mm-hmm. malts play with these, you know, hoppy beers, you know, these New England style IPAs, mm-hmm. because you do need proteins, you need some, you know, some oats, some wheat, get that haze, then you get some of those hop oils attaching to the proteins. Mm-hmm. What, yeah, how do those hops and malts interact? One one really fun thing is like we make a thing, a malt called Wikiup. So all of our malts have really wacky names, but they're actually all these named after all these old ghost towns that are around us. And so when we started off, we had a lot. I think Oregon in general, or in particular, has like the highest per capita num- amount of ghost towns. And so Pelton is our Pilsner malt. Wikiup is a wheat malt. It's really high protein. It's 16%, which I think is the highest you can get commercially available. And so my hypothesis has always been that what's causing most of the haze in these hazy IPAs is a malted high protein. Um, and so when you can malt high, like high protein, if you were to envision, envision it, it'd be like little tiny like branches that those hot polyphenols can glob onto. So the more more malted protein you have in there, you have more fracture sites, you have more like latch points for those things to bind onto. So what we're finding is that um, if you can successfully do that, you create, you know, something with more haze stability, which is it's crazy because like when we first started malting, it's something that I never thought was going to be a, a consideration or a thing. So if you're using Wikiup, like our, our red wheat malt at like 15%, you're making a perfect solution for this stuff to just cloud up, chunk up and not fall out of solution. Because these things sometimes, you know, like breweries like to sell these beers as quickly as possible because they're, you know, they want to sell them because they're fresh. They're wanting obviously probably money to be coming in right away. But if something happens to sit in the shelf for a couple of weeks, uh, what happens and if it starts, you know, you get some of these beers and they've started to kind of settle out. I think most people realize now that it's not it's not whole grain that's causing haze because the people that were doing that to begin with, gravity naturally will pull those 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 long chain, those dextrins down um, and they'll settle out. So like, for example, three-way IPA this year is 20% Wikiup wheat. And we've just been kind of going around the clock making that for them. And if we are making that, it's it's going into those styles of beer. We were doing a, an experiment with Brewlosophy where they actually were using, I think, I forget what company it was, but they were using red wheat malt that was 12%, ours at 16 and just seeing like how, ideally, like, you know, how long that takes to settle out if it does, making the same beer. And then if there's a flavor, if there's a flavor contribution as well. Yeah, uh, we grow... We grow the the hard we grow hard red spring wheat grain. That's actually the first thing I started malting. But we grow it if we're not growing it for malting. Most of it goes to Portland. It gets shipped out to Japan, and they're using it for noodle making. And so they want the high protein because high protein corresponds to um, to, to higher to higher um, uh, gluten which means higher elasticity, which makes it better for making noodles. Because if you have something with no gluten in it or low gluten, you can't make a noodle, it sucks. So they blend in high quality, high high protein central Oregon grain to kind of make a Miller's blend. And we actually get docked price-wise if it's less than 14.5% protein, which is still a crazy protein. We get bonuses um, on a percentage basis um, if we can go above that, so for most of our most of our red wheat um, grain, uh, it's it's sixteen percent protein. It's a re- the reason you don't see a lot of it malted is because it's when you were talking about the composition of grain, right? 
you, it's like almost like a matrix of, of carbohydrate cells or, or, you know, globules or whatever you call them and inner and like a matrix of that and proteins that have kind of bounded up. So when you're malting, the first part of the malting process is steeping and you're trying to force that water through and it's really hard to get water. You want it to be able, it goes in from the, like they call it the chit, like, you know, where the chit happens, the distal end or whatever, or not the distal end. It's, it's where this embryo imbibes the water. You want to force that water all the way down the length of the seed. Well, in modern malting, um, steeping happens in giant, like, uh, steeping tanks and it's all this submersion steep and so they're wanting most of the steeping to be done within 48 hours but it takes a lot longer to get water into that kernel of higher protein grains than 48 hours and in our system we're actually wetting it two days into the process to get that water forced all the way down into that grain so you mentioned you get docked based on like if your proteins mm-hmm. are a little bit lower. So with hops, it's uh, seed and stem. If you mm-hmm. have you know over two three percent seed and stem, typically you can sell it for a little bit less. Is there something similar? Yeah, we get dockage based on like plump. And that's a big one. But a lot of like when we're when we're growing it specifically for noodle making, the the protein is the biggest. You know that's the, that's what we're getting paid on essentially. <sighs> Moisture. I don't know if we get docked on that thing is like most since we're in the high desert most of the grain comes off the field like at eight percent moisture and so we never have to like we don't have to worry about storage at all that's one question that comes up when people see all the grain that we have in storage is like well how long can it last um and if it's dry you know we don't really see a lot of drop off and germ ever really if if we can keep it kind of in stasis um where you start having issues and like a lot of places around the world that grow malting barley i wouldn't say a lot of places but for example like maris otters grown in the uk right they have a hard time at harvest um having anything lower than 18 percent moisture 14 percent moisture and above is where you can start getting molds in storage and and a lot of problems so when they take grain off the field they have to take it back put it in storage and use like a corn dryer so they're using hot air blowing it up to try to get it down to at least 14 percent moisture Um, and when you start hitting stuff with hot air when it's just you know raw grain you can start digging it up and ruining the quality of it before it even goes into the malting process so that's the nice thing about growing that's another nice thing about growing grain in central oregon it's so dry like i said you're also completely dependent on irrigation as well at that point well are there are there any concerns about irrigation sustainability you know decades down the line because there's already panels looking at you know the yakima valley hops irrigations you know sustainability things like that yeah no it's it's a it's a real big issue like this year um we're we're actually allotted water um water rights or water uh, um, a certain amount of water every year um most of our farm ground most of the farm ground in central oregon has water rights attached to it in Oregon law, you know, water rights were created back in the day, and there's no new ones being made. Um, and so uh, it gets really tricky when it comes to like water law and whatnot. So in um, in Madras, in our farm, we're allotted two and a quarter acre feet of water during the irrigation cycle. And so this year, everything 
everything is also above ground water. Like we don't have any wells or anything. Central Oregon's like extremely volcanic. And so all of our farm is on top of basalt columns. And so our topsoil is maybe, you know, maybe 18 inches before we start hitting caliche and like lava rock. It makes really great soil. Like volcanic soils are some of the best if you can start getting organic material back into them. It, it, gets, it gets really tricky when we're having to push water to some of this stuff. So for this year, we, the reservoirs were pretty low. We got cut back. So we only have like three quarters of the water that we need for our farm. We're able to get by because we're on the very end of the system. And so our whole farm is connected with a whole bunch of like um, settling ponds and irrigation ponds and everything is connected together. So we're able to pretty much run all of our farm uh, off of water that would just go over the cliff and down to the Deschutes River. So we're really fortunate that way. But if it keeps on getting cut back more and more, there's it can become an issue. The nice thing about Central Oregon is we're not really carving any new farm ground out of the desert. We know how much water it takes to go around. There's enough water there for everyone that needs it. The big thing is about modernizing um, the infrastructure that we have because everything is above ground canals. And so you have that whole system, you have all this water evaporation. You've built canals into things like basically volcanic rock. And so there's parts of the system where the water, it, there's water just going down into the ground and we don't know where it's going. So the big thing they're doing over there is piping and modernizing that. And the thing is, like they say, if they're able to pipe like even six miles of the system, all of that water um, could be returned to the Deschutes River, no problem. Biggest issue is time and money. And um, if people are patient, it's gonna, the future is bright for it. It just, it takes time and it takes cooperation and whatnot. Um, and it's really like, you know, being a high desert farmer um, in order to survive, to, to survive, we've had to be pretty progressive with water conservation. We were the first farm in our county to, to put pivot irrigation in back in the early 70s. And we still have some of those same pivots today. Um, and even in our malting process, um, we came up with a completely new way to steep grain where we're only we're doing a spray steep. And so we have this big, we call it a mechanical floor malter, but it's this giant machine. It's a series of conveyors that we're moving grain around and around. And we're actually spraying with spray bars the steeping water onto the grain. So we're only giving that grain as much water as it needs. The water flows through the grain, out the building, it's captured as irrigation water, and we put it back on the field. So essentially, like we're a zero waste facility. You have to do these things if you're wanting to farm there. And that's, that's just the challenge. So. You talked a little bit about the partnership between OSU and you. You also have named varieties of grains. Could you talk a little bit about like the public versus private? You know, are there trademark varieties, patented mm-hmm. varieties, kind of that process and cooperation? Well, I, I mentioned Cascade hops a little, you know, a couple different times, all the sea hops. Like most of those came out of Oregon State's like hop breeding program and their public varieties. So the same thing exists with barley varieties and certain wheat varieties. So full pint is an Oregon State public variety. So if you can get access to it, you can grow it up. I mean, Oregon State asked for a little bit of money as a kickback for, for their work and due diligence and doing the whole thing. Um, but that's what we started with. So the next pint project will end up with five proprietary varieties. So we'll own them. They'll be protected. But to, you know, because Oregon State and because that program is, you know, a public program, the agreement then became, you know, anything that um, 
gets kicked out of the program. So the different kinds of varieties that didn't look like they were going to work on our farm are now public varieties. So people have access to those. They just won't, you know, they can maybe breed back with some of the stuff we own, but like we tie up the five and we're only probably out of those five only going to pursue one because that's just to keep it simple. And so, so now everyone has access to all this other stuff. So what might not have worked in the high desert under, you know, overhead or like intensive irrigation um, might work someplace else. But until people start doing those and taking those varieties, we just, we just won't know. So then how do you, how do you protect that? How do you keep it yours? Do you protect the seed? Do you, you know, give it a trademark name? Yeah, there's like a whole way of, of basically protecting certain varieties of seed over there. And, and Oregon State is administering that. So I don't, I don't have an, that's going to be the fun and really challenging thing is coming up for a name for some of this stuff. I just, there's kind of a convention in, in naming like different barley varieties. Cause you think about Maris Otter, the guy with that did that, I think it was a British breeder. He must've had a thing for like water mammals or something, because there's also in the back end of the seed bank, um, we've grown Maris mink. I think there's a Maris beaver floating around there somewhere. Um, but everything's Maris and then some kind of mammal. So it'll be fun coming up with the name. I don't know what I'm going to name it, but we'll just see. Maybe it'll be informed by the flavor of whatever it is. So we'll awesome. see what happens. Yeah. Well, covered a lot of good ground here. <laughs> there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot to talk about. And, it, and it, I feel like we're on the, the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff. We're doing a lot of really unique and, and groundbreaking things. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to is flavor. And if we're not making something flavorful or something that adds value for a brewer or distiller, um, there's no point in doing it. And I think that the malt, um, especially our malt, speaks for itself. It is adding that value. But I'm a pretty, uh, I'm always kind of pushing the bounds on things. And once we know that, you know, there is a varietal flavor difference, there is there is such thing as terroir, we're making all this really flavorful malt, it always beg- begs the question, like, well, what's next? And that's one thing that, like, pop growers and breeders and everyone has done a really good job with on that end. I'm doing that with the grain ends, and it's just going to take a lot of work. 